Hi, you're listening to the Fantasy Set List from The Song Sommelier. I'm Keith Jopling. I sit down with guests to talk about their relationship with a particular music artist. Not a personal relationship, but something close to it. When you consider the amount of time they've spent listening to that artist, thinking or reading about them, or attending shows. Often, an emotional roller coaster ride through the good times and the bad. We talk about the shows in particular, those experiences, any memories related to it. And then we ask the guest to talk us through a fantasy set list. Where would they like to see that artist play, in what setting or venue, and talk us through the set list, what they open with, what special performances they remember that they'd like to relive again, and how they'd close it. You'll find all the songs related to this podcast sitting right there on the website, alongside the podcast, the editorial, and the artwork by Mick Clark. So you can listen to the songs experience something of that set list afterwards. Or just go to songsommelier.com, look up the fantasy set list, or any of the other playlists on the site and enjoy. Hope you enjoy the discussion, and check out the playlist. Welcome to the Fantasy Setlist from the Song Sommelier with me, Keith Jopling, and my guest today, Dylan Jones. Dylan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Keith. I'm fighting fit. Great. Well, we, we, we're on episode three here. We had a bit of a gap between episodes, but I, I'm very excited to, to have you, and it's going to be a, a very interesting topic because we're going to talk about New Romantics, and um, I mean, much of this comes around uh, a new book that you've written, but let's get into that in a second. I would think that probably quite a bit of our audience knows who you are a bit about you, but how do you want to introduce yourself, Dylan? Uh, I am the editor-in-chief of GQ. Uh, I'm an author, uh, and I'm a father. Now, your, your book, Sweet Dreams, has just come out. I'm, I'm reading it at the moment. I'm on page 260, by the way. I've just hit 1980. You're a very good man. Thank you. Uh, I'm into the exciting bit now. Um, how did it come about? Uh, it came about because there are hundreds of books about punk, jazz, country and western, uh, all kinds of generic rock music, all, kind of, all kinds of genres. And there's almost nothing about this period. There's nothing about the early 80s. Um, there are a few very good books about post-punk, uh, and there are some sociological books written about the 80s. I've written a couple of books about the 80s myself. But this period itself, uh, not only has it not been written about, but when it is written about, it's sort of much maligned. Um, and there was, I mean, years ago, the 70s used to be called the, the decade that taste yeah. forgot. Uh, and then about 15, 20 years ago, Suddenly, it, uh, the 70s were no longer the decade that taste forgot. The 80s became the decade that taste forgot. Um, the, the 70s started being revered in a, in a very particular way. And there was also a sort of spate of television programs about the 80s. And they tend to focus on very traditional yeah. tropes. Um, uh, the binary nature of, of, of politics, Thatcherism, yuppies, um, <laughs> mobile phones, rah-rah skirts, uh, shrill pop music, postmodern architecture, etc., yeah. etc. Et um, but I wanted to try and reclaim the period 
because not only is it a great period for British pop music, but it's also a fantastically creative period full of great British bohemianism. Yeah, and it, it, I agree. It's it's often uh, looked upon very stereotyped, and I, I sometimes feel sorry for some of the superstar bands of that period, um, like Duran Duran, for example, who feature heavily in the book. Of course, when they're interviewed, uh, you know, any time since the eighties, it's always been just about their career in the eighties, and. Uh, I think what I love about the book is, first of all, it transitions the two decades, right? So it goes from mid-70s to mid-80s, and that's often how a decade is is really fully formed. It starts the previous decade. It comes out of a situation and is a response to a situation. So my next question, I mean, we, we're having this discussion now at a very interesting time. Um, you know, we're on the eve of another UK lockdown and same applies to many countries around the world. We've got the US election going on, and we're living in dystopian times. Um, and one of the things I, I think is really fascinating about the book is that the 80s was born out of a dystopian period in, in Britain. You know, we had sort of British politics, we had Labour isn't working, and the beginning of Thatcherism. Do, what do you think there's do you think history could repeat itself? Do you think some form of new romanticism? could come back or what would be the modern equivalent or is it all ba basically just part of history now um, i don't think you're going to see uh, a return to new romantics but i think that what will happen because of the because the orthodoxies of how we live and work have been um temporarily uh, destroyed um and some will have been destroyed for good i actually think that um you're going to see you're going to see uh, a great period of creativity because I think you're going to see a lot of empty buildings. I think you're going to see a lot of unemployed people. I think you're going to see a lot of angry people. And I think that the geography of cities is going to change. Uh, culturally, I think things will change. And out of that will come good culture. Uh, it might not be culture we like, um, but it, it, it will be good. I think that Britain, and in particular London, has an innate ability to rejuvenate itself on almost a sort of mm -hmm. annual basis. Uh, and in terms of the subcultures here, uh, there, there, there's something in the water. And that mix of yeah. art and music and fashion uh, and uh, advocacy uh, is very particular. And actually, I think that even though um, this period, this year has been appalling, uh, I think some good will come out of it. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. And I, I agree with you. I think there's just so many interesting things going on now, musically speaking. And it, I mean, I think there is a return to interest, actually, in, in the new mo new romantics period for, for younger people. That's what I sense anyway. I kind of see some signs of that. And you can see it in streaming figures and so on. But also, you know, if you look at jazz, I mean, young people, again, picking up guitars, the return of protest music as well and music being political is really really interesting in the book you know what i find particularly fascinating just at the point i've just passed this point actually is is the sci-fi references you know and uh, of electronic music at the time like you know phil oakey martin ware gary newman their accounts of how they created the music came out of the influence of of sci-fi I mean, was that a revelation to you? Or what were the new revelations that really struck you in all of those conversations you had when you were forming the book? Um, I mean, I lived through that period. And if the I suppose there were three types of people that I interviewed in the book. And it's an oral biography. And I, I did it in the same form 
as the form that I did my most recent book on David Bowie on, because I wanted there to be uh, a, a Greek chorus of voices. Um, and mm. a lot of people in the book are people I knew at the time, um, some of whom are my friends. Uh, some people I hadn't seen for 40 years. There were some people I hadn't seen since the, the dance, you know, the dance floors of various nightclubs in London in 1980. Mm. And a third of the people I'd never met before. I'd never met people like Mark Armand or Martin Fry before. Uh, and they were all fascinating. The thing that I gleaned from this period that I perhaps didn't really, really kind of... Uh, I suppose understand and didn't really sort of realize didn't click when I embarked upon this project that the more I got into it and the more I remembered and the more I wrote and the more people I spoke to and, and, and the more uh, that these sort of narratives started to develop in the book, the more I realized that it was a, a really genuine period of bohemianism. And you can look back upon that period now and think that the new romantics, which is people who dressed up and went to nightclubs, um, and you, there's a, uh, a sense that they were incredibly apolitical. Um, mm. But actually, I think that it was a great period for entrepreneurialism. And when you look back upon that period, entrepreneurialism and Thatcherism become conflated. Uh, yeah. And also, I think that a lot of the contextualization of pop music was done through the music press. And if you look at yeah. the enemy that I was a keen consumer of in the late 70s, ideology became more important than the, than the music you made in that post-punk period. Yeah. And when you had people who were daring to put on lipstick or were daring to say that they actually wanted to have a hit record, that they had ambitions, they were treated like pariahs. <laughs> yeah. However, yeah. As, 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 as Phil Oakey says in, uh, in my book, it's all very well talking about the fact that if you were a punk, you could pick up a guitar and with three three chords, you could write a song. He said that with one finger on a computer, he could make a, a much greater um, uh, a, a variety of music. And there's a real strong DIY ethic um, yeah. that goes through this period, whether it's the synth pop groups mucking about on, on crappy little computers um, or whether it's people going to nightclubs, buying all their clothes in, in secondhand shops and Oxfam shops, or whether it's artists starting to use bricolage in a particularly interesting way. Um, yeah. There's a genuine theme of creativity, which I think perhaps hasn't been acknowledged before. Again, I'm seeing parallels with, with where we are now, because again, you know, there's a lot of DIY going on. I mean, certainly if you're a young up and coming music artist these days, it's almost like no one's telling you how to do it because the labels themselves, they they don't know. They're kind of finding their way in the world. And that reminds me of some, some other comments in the book. I think it might have been Martin Fry or Nick Rhodes or one of them was saying, you know, no one could teach us or tell us what to do because they were just figuring it out as they went along because it was su such a pioneering movement. And you're right, a lot of, um, it was very entrepreneurial among other things. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also it was an incredibly, like punk, there was an incredibly wide variety of people involved. And I think yeah. also that people tend to frame the new romantic period as some sort of response to punk. But it actually wasn't. It was a continuation of punk. And a lot of the people involved in the, the early part of, of uh, the period who went to 
Billies and the Blitz Club, they had all been there at the beginning of punk and had become disaffected and rather dis- disillusioned because punk very quickly became an orthodoxy and there, there was a uniform yeah. uh, and it became very generic. Uh, and the people who had been there at the beginning, um, who had come from soul clubs, who'd come from um, mu- music clubs, uh, come from a variety of different places, art school, a lot, they wanted something else. Well, and, and whatever you know did come out of it, it lasted in in various forms. I mean, the other thing I'm I'm really fascinated in how many of the interviews with you know the the, the known band to the world, the Depeche, um, Duran Duran, Phil Oakey, of course, and Human League, Gary New, they're still here. I mean, they they've kind of been very inventive about how they've built longevity and how they've come back and they've. You know, they've ridden the good times and and the bad, but they're still relevant today. This fantasy set list, I'm going to give you a canvas here. I'm going to give you a blank canvas because I sense that Actually, now would be apart from the fact you can't put on festivals. You'd have to. It'd have to be virtual. Now would be a great time to put on a kind of sweet dreams new romantic festival, because I think all of these bands now have a newfound respect. Uh, I mean, this wouldn't be the Rewind Festival, for example. I guess that wouldn't really cut it for you. Uh, well, do you know what I think that when I was doing the the discography at the back of the book. I wanted to make it as broad as possible because I think if you just look at new romantic music, what you think of new romantic music in, in, in its essence, some of it's f- fabulous and some of it's a load of old rubbish. Um, but you can say that about any genre. But I think the important part of you, the, the important thing about this period is you had extraordinary um, sort of new romantic music which had bought which was born out of the nightclubs of london and sheffield and coventry and edinburgh and bristol and places like that uh, then you had fantastic disco music then you had a lot of the uh, german um futurist music and you had big bands that came out of that period people like Sade. um you had bowie dipping his toes back into the water you had there was a lot going on so i didn't want it to to narrow it down to what people would consider to be new romantic music. And I made sure that I included people like the Yellow Mag- Magic Orchestra, ABC, Sade, the Eurythmics, yeah. so Soft Cell, Duran Duran, Human League, um, Spandau, Ultravox, uh, as well as um, Tubeway Army. And obviously the greatest band of that period, the most influential band of that period, probably the most influential band uh, of all time, Kraftwerk. So is would Kraftwerk ultimately be the headliner here? I mean, it would be quite difficult to put to put any kind of... You can't put anyone on after um, Kraftwerk. You could have put Bowie on, <laughs> but obviously that's never going to happen. Um, so you could put Kraftwerk on, uh, regardless of who's in Kraftwerk. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So the playlist sits alongside this conversation, and, and you know we, we put some nice cover art around it as well. That's how we wrap it up. But you, you've, um, you've, you've chosen 13 classic tracks you're welcome to add a few more i think people will know these tracks as representative of, of these bands and, and the period perhaps with the exception of behind the mask why, why did that stand out the yellow magic orchestra behind the mask because it's a record that we used to um listen to a lot we we, we heard it in clubs 
and uh, we heard it on the radio and, and we played it in our flats. And it was a very important part of, of that period. And, it, and it's a record I love as well. And it is not, um, I mean, it was covered by Eric Clapton, bizarrely, a few years later. Yeah. But, um, a, a lot of people might not have heard it. And I think it's just a terrific record. Yeah, and it's it is so representative of of the eighties in in uh, in many different ways because it's it, I think it's is it Ryuichi Sakamoto yeah. Um, composition? Uh, yeah, I think it. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you know this, but Michael Jackson wrote some lyrics for it. Did you know that? I didn't. That's, that's a good fact. It, it is. Yeah, for oh, the you know that, and I don't know that. I'm really annoyed now. Oh, I had a look. I, I looked it up. You. I, I, no, I, I mean, I always do my... I think. That, <laughs> and that's brilliant. Um, was he attempting to record it at some point? Or did he record it? I think the idea was he thought about recording it because right. he liked the track. Um, he put... I think it was another verse he put on it. That ended up in the Eric Clapton cover. and the, I mean, the Eric Clapton cover itself, That that is... It's a pure 80s track. Great I mean, it's, that, Nothing wrong with it. it. Nothing wrong with yeah, it. Yeah. I didn't realise um, uh, that whole Michael Jackson um, relationship escaped me, so I apologise. Yeah, well, there you go. We, 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 it's, oh, there's it's an uh, endless treasure trove. The the eighties, you know, the the, the recordings of the eighties, all the people involved. If you say, just keep on going. I mean, your your book is is it's a bit of a gem because this I think it's seven hundred pages, but it's the first hand accounts that that are so fascinating to me so look you you got to meet some people that you're going to sort of line up for for this festival um tell us a bit about what you'd have in mind if if you were able to do this it, it's a fantasy right so the only other the only other act that would rival craft work in sort of um a primacy in, in terms of being top of the bill would be Sade, and and Sade most people might not think as an as a near romantic act because they didn't really start happening until the mid 80s but Sade uh, and the boys in Sade came out of that period they came out of those clubs she was at the same she was at St Martin's like everyone else was and like I was um, and she came out of that period and again uh, kind of maligned in this country um you know supper jazz uh, quite patronizing Massive act, sold millions of records all over the world. And she is one of those people, and they are one of those bands who can not do anything for 10 years and then and record something and release it. And it can be a global smash. They're recording at the moment and obviously have been slightly interrupted by the coronavirus crisis. But um, they will have a record, they will tour, and they will be massive. Also, I think the lovely thing about Sade is I think she's the only famous person I know or know of who has absolutely no interest in being famous. She likes being successful and she's very good at being successful because she is successful, but she has no interest in celebrity. Yeah, I think it's, when we talked about longevity earlier, I think the way that Sade's managed that has been fascinating because, I mean, these days, you know, it, it's a fear of missing out or a fear of being missed out. Uh, and people just feel yeah. like, um, you know, all the time people, people in the music industry are talking about the always on you know always delivering content always being on socials etc and uh, she's completely flipped that around i mean what they, they've made i think five studio albums over, over that period of time yeah. all meticulously made and recorded and, and beautifully sounding but 
she's retained the air of mystery, which I, I think you're right. I think if she was put on as as kind of joint headliner with Kraftwerk, no one would complain. What? How does that work? Who's a joint headliner? That doesn't make any sense. You're either number one or you're number two. There can't be two number yeah, ones. No, I'm you're, sorry. You're probably right. We... I don't know what kind of festival <laughs> you're running here. I mean, come on. Um, when have you seen Sade live? I mean, tell me about your. Uh, yeah, I have, and the last time I saw her was when the last album came out, which I think is a decade ago, maybe nine years ago, and I saw her play the Staples mm. Center in LA, supported by John Legend, and she was magnificent. Well, I mean, there you go, supported by John Legend, and it would have been a privilege for him, I guess. It bloody ought to have been, yeah. Of the bands on your list, tell me about when you've seen any of those bands live and what memories stand out for you in particular great performances or just a great time that you had well actually i've i always enjoy seeing craftwork and one of the best craftwork concerts was when i saw about three years ago three or four years ago at um the, the royal albert hall yeah. and i think there was probably only one original member left um uh, but they were tremendous fantastic um, not a particularly sophisticated AV show, but it didn't matter. You didn't want it. But the music was different. It felt live. It felt thunderous. It was it was amazing. The only disappointing thing was was the audience, because it was full of fifty year old fifty year old bald men. It was like looking in a mirror, a sort of fractured mirror. Um, <laughs> all the people in the were exactly the same. But what a great gig! You know the fascinating thing about these bands, and yeah, they appeal to a certain. Uh, vintage uh, demographic, etc. Because if you were there at the time, uh, I, I mean, I, you were lucky for one thing. I mean, I, I kind of feel like my formative years during the eighties, and that's my really that's my music. Where my relationship with music started, I just feel lucky and privileged that it was that decade uh, and none other. But I know you can always argue the point. Who else have you um, seen over the years that that really really stood out as as live, just brilliant live people from this period. Yeah, from this period or from your from your chosen list. I mean, Bowie. Um, I mean, I saw Bowie many, 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 many times, and he was he was rarely disappointing. Occasionally, he was disappointing, and 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 and, and, and sort of uh, in the latter stages of his mm. um, uh, performing career, he could be occasionally disappointing because he was slightly generic. Um, but I remember seeing Spandau record their, um, uh, I was there at the beetroot when they did the video for um, chart number one, I don't need uh, this pressure on They were pretty mm-hmm. fantastic. I have to say a, a band that isn't on the list who I always enjoyed seeing, who were a great live attraction, were, were Blue Rondo a la Turk, which was Chris Sullivan's Latin band. They were far too esoteric to be, to, uh, to be successful, to be pop stars, but they were, they were a great mm-hmm. live band. I've seen Duran Duran um, many times, and actually they're really good because it's like you go to you go to a Duran Duran concert, and it's a greatest hits concert. But there isn't doesn't feel like a sort of legacy performance. It doesn't feel like they're on a because um, I think a lot of bands from this period go on those cruises or they do the sort of eighties eighties nights. Yeah. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I mean, I hate all that nonsense. Um, I think you have to perform in your own right. But Duran Duran can and still put on a really good show. Yeah, I think they've always try I, I think through design and just sheer effort they've tried to avoid being sucked into that um kind of nostalgia yeah. bracket and of course they've always kept going in different forms and um 
I think one of the things that makes the conversation about, you know, what order you put them in just just redundant is the fact that over time, all of these bands have kind of come to command their own respect and, and their own place in on the scene. And Spandau is a great example because, you know, at the time uh, and, and, you know, probably in the, the couple of decades since they were always kind of seen as a little bit of the poor cousin of of Duran Duran but actually they were never that right and they were always sort of really great musicians and i think that's one of the the, the wonders of this list and the book is it you, you everyone's on equal terms these days aren't they the with the exception of Kraftwerk and Sade equal terms i broadly speaking I think you'd have a couple of fist fights if you if you if you invited them all into a room and, and said that. But um, I think that what this period produced, I think apart from a, a period in the sixties between sort of sixty four and sixty eight, I think that this period is the greatest period for British for the British pop single has ever been. And I think you could mm. I think you could say without fear of contradiction that the 70s was the album of the, uh, was the was the decade of the album and that the 80s was mm. was the decade of the single and i think that you look for, for sort of like 1980 to 1985 there's some great pop singles great 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 pop singles from this period not everyone made classic albums um it didn't kind of work that way but then uh, you look at the 60s and a lot of those acts didn't make classic albums they made very, very good singles. Yeah, I sometimes wonder about just where did all the great tunes come from? Because it didn't matter whether it was, you know, Human League doing the kind of one-finger keyboard thing or Duran Duran putting a bit more instrumentation around it and bringing, you know, meshing together different genres. They just all banged out so many incredibly good yeah, I mean, tunes. The, I, mean, I mean, the Human League, you know, a dozen great records, Duran Duran the same, Spanda had some good records. Very, very, very impressive. Sarcel, half a dozen classic records. Eurythmics, the same. ABC, great band, sort of concept band. Um, I think ABC are really interesting because everyone thinks, I mean, because the lyrics are kind of ironic and they think that the whole thing is is tongue-in-cheek, but actually their aspirations were to make records that sounded as good as the records produced by Quincy Jones, which is, uh, and Trevor Horn helped them in that. And a lot of this music does sound a little shrill now. Um, but in the right circumstances, at the right volume, um, this, some of this music is amazing. Well, you know, you talk about the the craftwork experience in the audience. I, I went to see ABC actually at Hampton Pool, which is around the corner from me, last summer, which which seems like it might have been a decade ago, actually, given the period we're going through now. But you know, I looked out to the audience at one point. It was a great gig, but looking back at the audience, I, I felt like I was sort of about to sort of go back into an old people's home. It's sort of you know, I felt like uh, uh, of any band um, that we've talked about, maybe ABC have been the ones that have been slightly underrepresented in terms of how the genre has been you know, kept going over the years and singles played on the radio and stuff. And it's really interesting that Martin Fry made uh, The Lexicon of Love uh, Volume 2, didn't he, just a few years ago? Uh, and I thought it was really high quality. Album. Didn't I think I, I? I mean, I'm fairly certain I listened to it. I don't think it made much impression on me. I, I often think about this. It might be just that that's a symptom of the times. In that you know there are some great records being made now, but you don't give them the kind of repetition and focus uh, that you used to because the, they just come at you so thick and fast. But it's what you were saying. I think it's 
it, it stacks up against many 80s albums. There's two or three great tunes on it, and it, it, it's quite a nice album. Yeah. It might not be a classic, but it, 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 it sort of just demonstrated to me how... It's a terrific record, and I think that... I mean, it's, a, it's an album of singles. You know, it's got, half, it's got four or five amazing singles on it. It's terrific. All right, so look, you you mentioned fistfights uh, behind stage. If, if you if you were trying to put these in in some kind of ranking order, I mean, who would if you were sort of curating this festival, who would you want to hang out with backstage most of all? Who who's you know great company from you out of this, or who who would you like to learn more about? Uh, I, I always want to learn learn more about lots of people, um, but um, Gary Kemp's always great to hang out with. Nick Rhodes is always great to hang out with. Andrew Hale from Sade is great to hang out with, as as is Sade herself. Mark Arman was tr- tremendously entertaining. Dave Stewart's incredibly entertaining. Never met any of the Ye- Yellow Magic Orchestra. <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, would like to spend some more time with the Human League. That could be quite fun. Midjour's always really good company. Mm. I remember I did a, 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 I was at Cheltenham Festival seven or eight years ago. And I was chairing a panel about something or other. I can't remember what it was. I remember Brian May was on the panel too from Queen. And as I arrived, um, uh, these all, all these autograph hunters came up to me, and um, they were very disappointed when I when I signed my name and, and it wasn't Midjour. And then when Midjour came in, he said, "Very odd thing outside." Some guy came up to me and thought I was Dylan Jones. So I thought it was. I think I was happier than he was. So. Well, there's a there revelation. Did you did you realise before that you were the spitting image of Mitchell? <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I'm not sure I am now, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure Mitchell feels the same way. But uh, Mitch is always uh, a very entertaining man to spend time right. with. Fantastic. Well, look, that, thanks for for joining me. It's been really great to have the conversation. So intriguing. Uh, I mean, this book was. I think, Thank you for asking. It's great. I think Sweet Dreams is by if I if my maths are right, it's your tenth music book. I know you've done another um, a few books on on the subject of politics. What's next? I've just finished a book, another book about the eighties, um, which will be published published in the summer, and that takes every year of the eighties and and uses that year to talk about different genre of, of music. Oh, wonderful. And I, I'm I'm just putting the finishing touches to that at the moment and that's been really good fun and after that i've got two more ideas for books which i want to do i like doing a book a year because i don't really have hobbies um so i want to get cracking on something else now right and and my last question since we're talking about we've talked about live music a bit um you know obviously that that's in a bit of turmoil at the moment and you know we're seeing all these gigs rescheduled for 2021 and whether they'll happen or not i'm not sure but who would you really look forward to seeing live once we can get back to whatever you call normal well weirdly i was looking forward to going to see squeeze play the o2 in in december uh, and i don't know if that's still happening or not i went to see squeeze play the albert hall maybe last year what a great gig that was terrific i mean i have to say there's that um I'll see most people at the Albert Hall, really, because I love the Albert Hall. But um, the Squeeze gig was something special. It was really, really good. I think the person I'd seen before, the last person I'd seen at the Albert Hall was was Bob Dylan. And I have to say, I've seen Bob Dylan half a dozen times, and he's never performed well. <laughs> I like the fact 
I've seen Bob Dylan, but I've but I've, I've never left one of his concerts going. God, that was an amazing. Yeah, concert. I mean, funnily enough, Bob Dylan was the first subject of um, of the fantasy set list episode one. You should take a listen because there's a lot of uh, a lot of the conversations about exactly that. It's the it's the you know you yeah. you never know what to expect, but you just take it as it comes. What you do because he's Bob Dylan and he's a genius. Absolutely, uh, yeah, he can get away with it. Um, all right, Dylan, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the next project. And yeah, keep in touch with us. Really good to chat. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Keith. Take care of yourself. Soon. Bye. Cheerio. Bye.